from Relay FM. This is Download, recorded Thursday, November 15th, 2018. This is episode 80. Maybe you'll all get roses. Welcome to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I am your host, Jason Snell, and I'm joined this week by three excellent guests. Stephen Hackett isn't here, so I felt lonely and I invited an extra person. Uh, first up, Neil Seibart, who is analyst at Above Avalon. Neil, welcome back. Hi, Jason. Thank you for having me back. It's great to have you here. Uh, Lisa Schmeiser is also back. She is an editor at IT Pro Today and a very frequent download guest. Hi, Lisa. You know I love coming on this show. It's been like two months. I, I felt uh, something went horribly wrong there, um, but I'm glad you're back. <laughs> uh, and uh, also a returning guest, uh, not for a little while, yeah, developer of PCALC and uh, other apps that may or may not still exist in a year. James Thompson, hello. Oh, thanks for having me back. I'm currently watching the UK news in in a tiny corner of my screen. So if I if I start to sound nervous, you'll know why. Uh, I, yes, I I could guess. Mm. I could guess that. All right, let's get down to it. Uh, we have three topics to talk about. These are the most interesting stories the week has picked by me, not Stephen Hackett. He's not here. He's on assignment. So we will start with... Amazon's HQ2, which is now official, there was talk about them the last couple of weeks about that they were going to go to New York City, to the Long Island City area of uh, Queens, and to the Washington, D.C. area in Virginia in an area called Crystal City, or or they want to call it (laughs) National Village or something like that. Uh, Lisa has some personal experience with that. Um, Now, you know, some residents in New York City are not thrilled. There's only one uh, subway line that serves that part of Queens, and it's already crowded in New York City subway way is is uh troublesome so there's some sort of like how do cities balance the people who live there are not always thrilled when a big project is coming in because it doesn't necessarily mean good things for them uh also this whole process has gotten a lot of criticism um it struck me as feeling a little bit like um like a owner of a sports team kind of holding their team for ransom and hoping that cities will outbid one another and build them a giant stadium that they can move into and make a lot of money and definitely there were there were some uh reads on this this that uh, that went that direction too and i just kind of wanted to go around and get everybody's thoughts about um about amazon stuff and these in particular and maybe this this practice more generally of shopping for a big location and trying to get subsidies from governments uh, neil why don't we start with you i'm not surprised at how this played out i think last year when amazon announced i call it a competition it seems like what what it was uh Looking out at the U.S. and 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 asking essentially local governments to um, offer proposals. Now I live a little bit outside of New York, and at least in the Northeast, there is a very intense competition between states for these types of projects, for businesses to open headquarters, or even for businesses just to uh, transfer from one state to another. And so this. This landscape of offering incentives, it's been going on for quite some time. And again, it's not just really the Northeast. It's all over. Uh, but I think the way Amazon went about this, it, it does leave a lot of people wanting for more. It, it feels wrong in some ways. Um, I think when you looked at the U.S., you looked at where Amazon already had operations. Well, from their perspective, their goal was to get people. It's to get talented people. And so you could kind of almost map out where they were looking to open up another headquarters. You would look for areas where you have a good university system, a good uh, uh, environment or infrastructure for training or or really just to have that that educated base of possible employees. And I think it, it kind of – you were looking at the Northeast. You're looking maybe the Boston, New York, Washington, Philadelphia corridor. Um, and so – Part of me, I think, was was maybe thinking, you know, could have Amazon did this a little bit differently where uh, they seek out a few cities and, and maybe go directly to those cities and work out something where, um, you know, they will put in major money in, in the city in terms of various investments. And, and of course, maybe the city could can come back in, in certain ways. But as it was done or the method it was the method that was used to do this I, I think it just led a lot of cities to go jump through hoops even though i don't really think they had a shot 
at this to begin with. So I think it, it just the overall process I thought could have been um, it could have been better for for everyone involved. All right, we'll go from New York to somebody with a lot of experience in D.C. Lisa, what do you think about about the uh, the Amazon thing? I think the most interesting and so far underreported aspect of this is that they're also opening a major job center in Nashville, centered That's around logistics, centered around logistics and transportation. FedEx's world headquarters are in Memphis, and. Um, I think what we're going to see is Amazon quietly building up a base of talent in that area as they get ready to build out their infrastructure and logistics arm. And my suspicion is that one of the reasons they chose Nashville is Nashville is a city that is still comparatively affordable and um is currently governed by people who are really pro-growth, but it's got a number of very attractive lifestyle factors. It's located near major airports. There's a lot of outdoor recreation. There's a bustling cultural... um scene. And it's become increasingly attractive to younger people who are looking to relocate someplace and get more bang for their buck. So I think that's a um, one aspect of the story that hasn't been examined a whole lot. Uh, second aspect is people seem to forget that Amazon is essentially a cloud services company with a really nice retail arm attached to it. And wherever they were going to go, it was going to make sense for them to go someplace where either they don't have to travel a very long way to service their biggest customers, in this case, um, the federal government, with whom they are likely to have an enormous Pentagon cloud contract very very soon. Like that's that's closing in a matter of months, um, especially now that Oracle's appeal has been smacked down. And New York City makes sense because there's it's still a finance area. And again, it's easy to get in and get out. It cuts down on travel costs considerably, and it gives them a great springboard for jumping over to Europe anytime they want. Um, London is turning into a huge AI capital. Amazon's going to end up bulking out more investment in that area like a lot of other big tech companies are, this gives them um, – it is a lot easier to fly from New York to London than it is from Seattle to London. Um, the thing that I hope business journalists and civic journalists follow up on is taking a look at all of the incentives different cities were offering and asking why these places can't be bothered to do that for their own people. For example, Atlanta was offering Amazon uh, special parking and an exclusive airport lounge. Uh, Boston was offering Amazon employees zero interest mortgages to afford houses. Chicago was promising to make infrastructure changes. Like, the, I, I read through some of these proposals, and my question was, if if I were a citizen, wouldn't I be angry that my city couldn't be bothered to do this for me, who lives here and pays taxes already? <laughs> so, you know, I, I hope that's a conversation that um, some journalists begin to have with their beat subjects, because I, I think that's something else that comes out of this, too. What do you what can you tell me about uh, Christ, Crystal City in Virginia? <laughs> what What is that? Yes. Is that just kind of a, a, a blank corporate zone that is ripe oh for rebuilding? Gosh. So my dad worked in Crystal City in the 80s, and it was bustling then because it had a lot of defense contractors. Um, I should mention my family moved up to Northern Virginia, and my dad worked at the Pentagon and in Crystal City when I was in high school. And um, in the 80s, it was it was bustling, and it's right near National Airport. And I, I tweeted this thread yesterday in the 90s when I was um, in my first career as an idealist at a nonprofit in D.C., um, on nights and weekends, I would lifeguard in Crystal City. And that place is kind of weird, or it was, because it's got this great metro center and this underground mall and this system of tunnels and standpipes. And it is possible to spend entire days without actually ever seeing, um, you know, plants or animals or <laughs> trees. It feels very, you know, in the future, we'll all wear jumpsuits and live underground. I think Jeff Bezos is here for that, right? I think that's all <laughs> part of his plan is to get the mole people involved. <laughs> yeah, but Buff Bezos is here for it. Um, mm -hmm. I was there last. I was there last month um, because I drove cross country. We ended up in DC, where my mom still has a place, and then flew out of National, and it was really empty because they did have a federal government restructuring and downsizing in the early oddies. Um, a lot of the places that had been open when I was there in the nineties were no longer there. That said, if they're moving in and they're taking over this. Um, the, the empty office space. It's good for the region. I think it's going to make it very difficult to live there, though, because Northern Virginia already has a huge traffic and infrastructure problem. Um, the roads are never not clogged. Public transit is not um, up to getting more people off the roads. And I don't know what will happen 
Well, I do, but I can't say for certain what's going to happen to like housing costs when you have all of these well-paid people who move in and start working on Amazon's, you know, Pentagon cloud contract. But I would suspect that Crystal City is about to get a lot more retail offers. Um, I would also suspect if you watch the news, oh, they'll call it National Landing now. Um, like a Whole Foods will probably move in there and a Trader Joe's sure. and, and like all of the, you know, adjacent brands, like three or four brew pubs. And I'm sure like a spin gym is already looking for space and things like that. <laughs> That's but right. But it's, yeah, you're basically going to see like the same. It'll be like Pleasanton or Fort Collins, whereas there's just this cluster of, you know, um, stores and gyms and things that appeal to people. I would honestly be surprised if any of those folks moved outside Crystal City and, you know, went and visited the mall regularly or went down to the Torpedo Factory in Old Town Alexandria or really got to the area at large. Crystal City is very good at making sure you stay in the area. <laughs> Interesting. In the tunnels. Uh, James, what do you think about this This whole idea of shopping for uh, a, a location and, and seeking subsidies and all of that? Well, I thought it was very interesting. I mean, it was a sealed bid auction. They got something like, I think it was 238 bids. Um, and with each bid, they got huge amounts of interesting data, which they can then use. I, I, I'm sort of, I don't see the logic in giving two billion to a one trillion dollar company. Uh, and I can rightly see why people in those areas might be quite annoyed because it's, it's a, it's a two-sided thing. It's like not only are these people coming in and getting this subsidy, which is not being spent on the locals, but then, and as Lisa said, this is likely to push house prices up. I'm assuming local businesses are not exactly going to be thrilled by having Amazon in their back garden. Um I think one of the interesting comparisons is going to be to what Apple does, because they've got this rumored second campus, which is roughly about the size of one of these, you know, something like 20,000 employees, I think they were talking about. And there was a rumor that it was going to be North Carolina that was going to get that, but that was on hold or they were waiting to see what the incentives were. So I don't know if Apple is doing anything similar in shopping things around and we're going to have this story again uh, before the end of the year. But that, I think, was supposed to be announced this year. If there's one thing that's not Apple-like, it would be announcing that you're going to do a contest to see where your mm. thing is going to go. They, they're probably much more behind the scenes talking uh, to, like it's, what Neil said, is identifying the Dis- the cities yeah, and, and going to them and talking to them and saying, we're thinking about this and is, you know, how would this work and all of that instead. Because uh, you're right, that, that Apple, is, Apple is planning on doing that too. I, I also think... Uh, it can't be discounted that this is about West Coast companies wanting a presence on the East Coast. Uh, I believe a majority of, of of the population in the United States lives in the Eastern time zone. And so having Amazon in Seattle, I, I mentioned this last week, and Natalie Jarvie, who's a Seattle native, was like, hey, don't slight Seattle. And it's like, no, I'm not, not slighting Seattle. It's more like I think that there are a lot of people who... Uh, are very East Coast centric, let's say, in the, as a native Californian, I can say that, East Coast bias. Uh, and and the, for these companies, having a strong presence on the East Coast is not a bad idea. So two things. One, I cover unified communication for the day job. And um, one of the things I hear repeatedly is that, um, and these companies are convinced, of course, their product will solve the problem. But one of the things I hear repeatedly is that conference calling is and, and being able to talk to people and collaborate with them effectively over geographic distances is considered a big business problem and a big business priority for people to solve. And um, distributing your workforce regionally solves the problem of how to service your customers more effectively. And the second thing is travel takes up a lot of time for a lot of people with their jobs and it's expensive. And um, it also creates internal jobs because then you've got people who have to handle either travel logistics or expense reports. And that just, ugh, it's a whole bunch of services that are related to that. If you've got Region, if you've got regional offices all over the country, which is honestly what this sounds like, we keep talking like it's headquarters, but the truth of the matter is they're basically branch offices. And what Amazon is doing is they're basically guaranteeing that they will be able to put offices 
where their centers of business are going to be. And again, New York is your center of finance. It's probably where they're going to put a lot of their retail experts too, especially when they um, do more pop-up stuff, more experiences, more flash sales, more work with influencers and things like that. DC is where they'll have their lobbying base and they'll have their cloud computing base for the most part. They're going to put logistics in Nashville. I would be willing to bet that they would probably, they'll probably put something in the South or Southwest at some point, um, you know, if they haven't been priced out of Austin, simply because it'll make sense. And, um, and, and so it will go. It, it just, for all that we're like, the internet makes things possible. And I realize we're talking to people in New York and, and, and the UK right now, but face to face meetings and face to face customer and client servicing still is a huge, um, time and cost thing for businesses. And so if you can alleviate that, it's good for your bottom line. Yeah, the downside is that uh, these are places with high costs of living. And I think that was one thing that people were surprised by a little bit is that these were not decisions to put uh, a, a new headquarters out in like Denver or someplace like that, where it's a reasonable cost of living for the people. Um, and there's also an argument that in places like New York and D.C., you're you're not necessarily uh, going to have an influx of new talent as much as you sort of move the jobs around because there's already so many qualified people there. I don't know. Well, that's a that's a huge U.S. trend right now, too, is superstar cities and clustering. Um, it's something that's been coming up. And uh, I would say urban planners started look, paying attention to it back around uh, 1999 to 2000 or so. And an increasing amount has been paid attention as college. Gra- there's more and more studies showing that college graduates and capital and jobs are flowing to like six to eight major job centers in the U.S. And um, everybody else is just kind of scrambling for what's left. So uh, I think people were kind of hoping that Amazon would not perpetuate the superstar city inequality that's happening in the U.S. right now. And that is concentrating opportunities in a way we haven't seen before. That said, from Amazon's perspective, their job isn't to make the U.S. a more economically equal place. Yeah. I, do, I don't like on the one hand, I can see why they picked the places they picked. On the other hand, um, I think it's kind of BS what they made the other, not what they made. I think it's kind of BS that we went through this bachelor like fiction where maybe, <laughs> maybe you'll all get roses. Maybe I'll give a rose to one or two of you. And then you look at the concessions they wrung out. A lot of these cities had none. They, they made a lot of cities uh, deal with them with a non-disclosure agreement basis. There's that ridiculous FOIA thing they have going on in Virginia where the state has to give them two days notice if any reporter files a FOIA notice to see what the terms of the deal are so that Amazon has time to prepare. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, um, I, I think the larger conversation here, look, there are two things, which is one, is it really tech's job to spread around the money and the jobs and the wealth? Or should we be asking all industries why they're doing this? And then, then the second thing is, um, let's, uh, again, look at the incentives that cities were offering or look at the rights they're willing to sign away from their citizens in the interest of luring a big business and ask, is this really good for you and, and, and your daily life? <laughs> And, and I think, uh, James raised an interesting, uh, point when you're thinking about Apple looking for a, a, a new campus to build. In some ways, when I look at this Amazon process of opening, um, I mean, they, they do call it two new headquarters. In some ways, it reminds me of the, the company's sort of decentralized structure where, um, as Lisa was saying, you're going to have, certain functions at certain locations. It just makes sense. Whereas with something like Apple, I would be skeptical that they would ever do something like this where you're you're having a legitimate new headquarters. Instead, from Apple's perspective, Apple Park is going to be the headquarters. But what they will have are outposts. And you're seeing this more and more, specifically research and development outposts, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. Um, but at the core, you have really Apple Park is sort of like the sun in a way, and everything else kind of revolves around that one campus. So I would be interested to see over time with this Amazon structure just how almost in a way independent will these headquarters be. And I, I tend to think that you're going to have a lot more independency there. Um, specifically on Amazon's site, they mention how um, they're planning on putting senior leaders, doing cross-company um, meetings through these. So it, it does speak to really just almost off offsetting or, or taking certain parts of Amazon and, and putting them 
in in these new campuses. So I think it it does kind of it has that Amazon feel to it that you may not necessarily see with some of these other large uh, companies in Silicon Valley or or Seattle. I mean, with Apple, that was going back to their strategy of the 90s where, you know, you had Cupertino, but then you had, there was where I was working, which was in Cork, and then there was places all around. And then when money got tight, everything got pulled back in. And it's now just, I think this North Carolina facility was supposed to be um, call center stuff again, um, which is what's the majority of Cork now. But yeah, I'd be very, I'd be very surprised if they have any real autonomy um, in these satellite facilities. Right. I keep thinking about IBM in the nineties too. Um, I went to school in upstate New York in the nineties after several IBM satellites had closed, and the impact on the communities around them is real. It's it's amazing to see what happens when. Um, a one business town has the business shut down. And I think in a way, one of the reasons you pick New York or um, Washington, D.C., in addition to the proximity and the business benefits for Amazon, is I think it's easier to attract talent. Because um, if you are a job hunter, it's probably easier. F- well, it's it makes more sense for you to say, I'm willing to move to New York, or I'm willing to move to Seattle, or I'm willing to move to Washington, D.C., because even if this job doesn't work out, I can get something in my field. Whereas if you move to the one tech company in a town and the job doesn't work out, your options are so much um, narrower than they would have been otherwise. Well, uh, we have much more to talk about. Fascinating stuff. This story will go on for a while because, of course, none of this is real yet. It is only starting now. Um, Want to move on to our next topic. Before we do that, let me take a break and tell you about our sponsor. This episode is brought to you in part by Pingdom. While you've been listening to this podcast, how would you know if your website has gone down? Funny story this morning. I got pinged that our website was down. We had a runaway process, a backup process, had to reboot it a few times. It was me, my friend Greg. We're both basically not wearing pants and have just woken up, but we got the site back up in like 10 minutes. And uh, this would not have happened if we had not been pinged. How would you know if your site was broken? It was still up, but the buy now button, that is how you make all your money, had stopped working. You might find it by luck. You might get a complaint or people might just abandon your site and go somewhere else and you're losing money with every second that goes by. You need someone to tell you everything is running smoothly on your site. And that's why you need Pingdom. They let you know the moment your site goes down or something on it breaks in whatever way is best for you. They use more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. You give them the URL. They take care of the rest. Don't risk being the last to know about something on your site being broken. Start monitoring it today by going to pingdom.com slash RelayFM. Right now, you'll get a 14-day free trial, no credit card necessary. And when you sign up, use the code DOWNLOAD when you check out and you'll get 30% off your first invoice. Thank you, Pingdom, for keeping our sites up and running and supporting download. All right. So next topic, the uh, Yonhap News Agency reported earlier this week that uh, Samsung's new phones are coming in February. There's going to be a Galaxy S10, of course, one without 5G and then a little later one with 5G support. But the thing that most people are talking about after the demo a couple of weeks ago is this foldable smartphone that they're calling the Galaxy F, apparently, according to this report, uh, with a 7.4-inch screen when unfolded and a 4.6-inch screen when folded and it might cost as much as $1,800. So uh, maybe not entirely practical, but it's worth having that, you know, a moment to think about what does it mean to have potentially a foldable smartphone? I thought maybe we would start with the app developer among us right now. James, what do you think about this idea that we may be uh, having a new class of smartphone that is a convertible, basically, that will turn from a little phone into a uh, almost tablet-sized device? Well, when, when I think of the the flexible screens, I think of the classic Gene Roddenberry TV series, Earth Final Conflict, which has As their, we all do, sure. Their, their uh, little <laughs> globals, which had a screen rolled up in the handle and it pulled out. Uh, and that seemed much more interesting than this. I mean, at least it's a design that they haven't shamelessly stolen from Apple. Um, but you know, again, given Apple's elimination of moving parts on their phones, it's certainly interesting to introduce a device that's effectively going to be just one big moving part. Um, I mean, yeah, if you if you look at something like uh, 
an iPad and like state of the art is, you know, half a centimeter thick. If you're going to have something that folds and has a screen on the outside, I mean, what are you talking about? Like a one centimeter thick phone, something like that. Um, and even looking at the size of my XS Max, if you folded that out and doubled it, you know, it's not really that much more significant. You know, it doesn't really compare to even like a, a small iPad. So I, I don't see what the market is for this thing. You know, it's going to be a phone that's going to be presumably bulkier than what they're going to be offering otherwise and doesn't support 5g as you were saying um so you know is it is it a a tablet which is can be folded slightly smaller uh, is it a phone i, I don't know it, it doesn't i don't see what it's going to give you because the tablets that seem to be moving bigger and bigger um you know we've not had an ipad mini refresh in years and years that doesn't seem to be where the market is so i don't know who this is for i think the overall concept probably was a little bit more interesting a few years ago when you had smaller smartphones and the gap between smartphones and tablets was larger uh, if you look at the ipad out of the gate my theory is one reason it did so well is people wanted uh, that additional screen real estate. They wanted to see what iOS and a large screen was like. But now when you look at the 10s Max, you have a 6.5 inch screen already. And for some people, that's really just too much. And so I have questions over, well, what would be the value of having um, roughly a 7.5 or 7.4 inch device when unfolded. It doesn't make a, a ton of sense to me. And then I think the big problem for Samsung is that you're kind of looking in the middle between a smartphone and a tablet. But at the end of the day, I think for the average consumer, they are going to be grading this device next to a smartphone. And I don't think Samsung can just say, well, it's basically like a smartphone. It might be a little bit thicker. It might be the, it has to be just as good as a smartphone and then do something else. And I'm, I'm skeptical about that. Now, of course, from Samsung's perspective, what they really hope isn't necessarily that this one device does well. They want other manufacturers to embrace this vision and head in that direction. Then Samsung can profit from selling the, screens, the screen technology. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so I think that that's one thing to, to keep in mind is in some ways it's sort of like Microsoft Surface strategy where, yes, I, it, it's good if they're succeeding with that, but they're also interested in other manufacturers sort of taking, taking, uh, kind of taking the torch and running with it. I think, um, the other element here is when you're thinking of Samsung, they are looking for new growth factors. And so um, their wearable strategy, I, I tend not to be too optimistic about that. I think it's it's not really going anywhere. They had the VR. Um, it didn't really go anywhere. And then I think we all are seeing the slowing down or the, the maturity of the smartphone market. And so they're looking for what that next thing is. What can they grow into? Um, and it's interesting that they're going in that direction and not necessarily wearables. If you listen to Samsung's uh, keynote or presentation going over this device, they like to run with this theory or this, this narrative that, you know, we are setting the vision for screens. Well, what a, what if the screen's future is actually smaller? And what I mean by that is what if the screen is, say, in front of your eyes with augmented reality glasses? Or what if the smartwatch, which, which is a, a, obviously a smaller screen, what if that gets more valuable over time? In my view, I think those are really the, the future of the screen and not necessarily trying to kind of take a smartphone and, and a tablet and kind of mix things together. I mean, I think similar to how we have laptops and desktops, we're going to have large screens in our life. Those aren't going to go away. But I think when you're thinking of the momentum here, I would think it's with wearables and not necessarily trying to go with this foldable smartphone tablet device. When I read this, the first two questions I had were, what problem does this solve? And who is the intended market for this? 
and I'm still not clear on answers for either of them. I think we're at um, an inflection point in computing in general, where, I mean, we've broken out of the desktop, thanks to smartphones. And um, tablets at this point are doing more, more people are working more on tablets now. Um, and we're moving away from, you know, like the typing metaphor and all of that. It, but I look at something like this, and all I can think is maybe it's useful for people who, for either sight reasons or dexterity, need a larger screen because they don't have the fine motor control or the vision for a smaller one. But the price point doesn't make it that accessible. And um, again, I'm just not clear who this is for or what need it fills that is currently being unfilled in the market, or what need it's inventing that consumers will decide that, yeah, this is what I need. And maybe there's something about it that I'm missing. Because, for example, one of the things I I remember reading and being like, oh, the light bulb went off was um, when Apple's iPhone came out, that was the beginning of the end for mid-priced digital cameras. Because people were like, why would I carry on both a camera and a phone when I can take decent-ish pictures on my phone? Click, here I go. It was the appeal of... and, And the iPhone was not sold as a camera, but people warmed to that feature. And now it's a core component of it. And so I was like, maybe there's something in the Samsung foldable phone that I'm not seeing and not perceiving that people who who do use it on the street will be like, yeah, this is my killer app for it. Yeah, this is the killer function. And in hindsight, it'll become obvious. I just can't see it now. So I'm I'm still very confused as to who is going to pay four figures for a foldable foldable phone. I mean, my my argument would be, and I'm not sure I entirely believe this, but the argument is that we've seen that people want larger phones. And there are a lot of parts of the world where this is their only major computing device and they do all their work on it. And that's what's driven up larger and larger phone sizes. And theoretically, this trend could lead to a place where you can get a phone that that fits in your pocket and that you can hold in your hand at a glance. And yet, if you want to get down to work, you can pop it open, essentially, and have something that is a, a you know, a large phone tablet size, at least, if not a small tablet size. And I I mean, that's the motivator here, I think, is to realize that people still want bigger and bigger phones. And at some point, they can't hold them and they can't put them in their pocket. I'm not sure uh, that market exists, but I'm also a little wary to poo-poo it too much when we all, I think, poo-pooed the idea of larger and larger phones. And it turned out that there was a market for them, that, that Samsung actually, by throwing the spaghetti at the wall, they found that that market existed and it benefited them greatly. And, you know, I think that's sort of what they're going for here is who knows, maybe this is a thing and maybe it won't be. To Neil's point, they also make the screens. So if somebody else has a bright idea, if Apple has a bright idea and popularizes this, guess what? They're probably going to be using Samsung's tech. So it, it win, it's a win for Samsung, but I don't know that that's, that's my gut read on it is just, I, I think we, we maybe shouldn't discount the idea that people might like people who like large, large phones might like the idea that they can make their phone even larger um, when they want to. Yeah. And may I just say, so I had Zoolander on the other day and <laughs> the joke was that phones would become increasingly tiny until they were thimble sized. And wow, does that joke date that movie? Yeah. yeah wow. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it turns out everyone else is like, no, I would like to hold a giant phone to my head if I have to talk. Wrong, <laughs> wrong call when we don't talk yeah, on our phones anyway. Call. So it doesn't matter. Well, Zoolander in your face, Zoolander, we got you. Um, okay. We have more to talk about. Let's, uh, Uh, Let's take a break. Let me tell you about our next sponsor. This episode of Download is also brought to you by Linode. They run my server. With Linode, you'll have access to a suite of powerful hosting options with prices starting at $5 a month, and you'll be up and running with your own virtual server in the Linode cloud in less than a minute. They have industry-leading performance. Don't worry about the performance of these virtual servers. It's amazing. They have native SSD storage, a 50 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors, 10 different data centers spread all around the world. You can serve your customers even quicker than before if you want to do like some balancing so you've got servers in different places you can do that my servers in dallas we just i don't know why cowboys i don't know they have an api at linode lets you automate tasks develop custom applications in the cloud everything is manageable via the command line i uh, ssh in to my linode server sometimes and sometimes i use their command line that's in their web app which they have too it's pretty cool all of their pricing tiers feature hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups and node balancers 
great pricing options available. Their plans start at one gig of RAM for $5 a month, a whole server on the internet for $5 a month. And there are high memory plans too, starting at 16 gigs of RAM. And as a listener to download, you can go to linode.com slash download FM. You will support us, but you're also going to get $20 toward any plan. And if you do the math on that one gig plan I mentioned, that's four free months just for signing up. And there's a seven day money back guarantee. So there's nothing to lose. Go to linode.com slash download FM to learn more, sign up and take advantage of that $20 credit or use the promo code download FM 2018 when you check out. Thank you to Linode for running everything I do on the internet and for supporting download. All right, before we move on to our last topic, time for the story you might have missed, something that may have flown under your radar, but it's worth at least mentioning on the show. Bloomberg reported that Google's Waymo subsidiary is planning to launch the world's first commercial driverless taxi service next month. The service will compete with Uber and Lyft and will feature self-driving minivans that the company has been testing in Phoenix, Arizona. It's initially going to roll this out to a small group that's been riding as part of their test program in the Phoenix suburbs for a while now, um, and then they will add new customers gradually as more vehicles are added to the fleet uh, this is a big step for them they will get there first there are some competitors who say that they are going to be starting similar services but uh probably the earliest that they might arrive would be late next year so uh and there will be backup drivers in some of these cars so they may be driverless but uh they may also have a person in them anyway just in case uh anyway so uh, if you're in the phoenix suburbs i guess watch out for robot taxis Uh, It's practically total recall there. Uh, Let's move on to topic number three. Uh, Topic number three is YouTube and the EU. So Susan Wojcicki, who is the CEO of YouTube, posted a thing and they've got a whole like sub site on YouTube now about something called the the EU uh, copyright declaration and specifically Article 13. The idea here is that YouTube is afraid that this, uh, if it is passed by the European Parliament in January, would put the burden on services like YouTube to make sure that everything is not violating copyrights. And uh, Wojcicki's point was that this might actually cause YouTube to stop, start blocking videos in Europe because uh, even... Uh, the, lots of lots of videos have multiple copyrights and nobody is actually sure who owns it and uh, YouTube doesn't want to take responsibility. They would much rather the uploaders take responsibility. And she went on to say that their content, content ID program is awesome, which if you're somebody who has ever uploaded videos on YouTube that you owned, you know that it's not awesome because a lot of stuff gets taken down for fake copyright infringement uh anyway this is uh there's also an an article 11 which is a link tax which would make potentially certain sites that link to other sites liable for uh payment for the link which is a totally bizarre concept uh uh, this is a uh, this is kind of fascinating because it is really YouTube trying to wave its arms and say uh, we, we're going to take down YouTube in Europe if you don't listen to us. Uh, somebody pay attention to us. Uh, I'm 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 interested to see how this goes. James, you are our uh, at least for the moment, uh, unless how is Theresa yeah. May doing? Our EU correspondent. Let me let me know what do you think of this? Yeah, I was going to say you know whether I'll still be in the EU at the point when this proposed uh, directive goes into effect. Something of an open question today um, as we record this. But yeah, so I mean, I make my living from intellectual property. Uh, So, you know, I should be in favor of this thing, but I'm not entirely sure that I am. Uh, I mean, I was thinking about it in terms of like the app store. Like if Apple has to scan every app that gets uploaded to see if it's compliant because they would be liable for any copyright uh, problems. You know, what's that going to do for the app store and review times, which are now at an all time low? Um, you know, YouTube says this is technically impossible to enforce, to scan everything to see if it, it, uh, complies with copyright. I mean, it makes sense because they've been completely unable to stop hate speech and various other things turning up on YouTube. Um, you know, and it could be argued that YouTube and Google have profited at least in part from other people's copyright violations. Um, but, you know, so I, I approve of protecting intellectual property, definitely. Um, but I think, you know, copyright law at this point, you know, copyright durations are too long. Copyright law tends to benefit already rich, large corporations that can afford good lawyers. Um, so, you know, this is, this just seems to be, 
at some level, you know, it, it's giant mega corporations squabbling over things rather than it going to benefit uh, the actual uh, everyday person on the street. Yeah, it seems like I mean, going through the blog posts from from YouTube, it it doesn't seem like there is a, a clear solution here. At least if if YouTube is is being upfront as to um, not being able to really um, handle the 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 regulation or or the ruling. I mean, I look at this from the perspective of the creator. Um, I mean, I don't do too many YouTube videos, but I've kind of done a few here and there. And, and I do have a lot of respect for video creators. It's a, a medium that, um, we're, we're still really in the renaissance of, of video. And, um, one thing that has been pretty consistent over the years is it's increasingly difficult to, monetize or essentially to find sustainability through video. Um, you're seeing some people find success maybe through sponsorships or um, different forms of, of subscriptions. Uh, but when you're talking about really the, the, the ad revenue, it's, it's increasingly difficult to make something of that. And when I look at this news story um, and the possibility that maybe – Google or YouTube is really kind of saying, yeah, you know, we're just going to um, take down videos or um, that that's I, I it's clearly a negative for the creator. And I think it just it, it kind of just adds another burden to that whole medium. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it doesn't sound like there is a, a easy solution here. And even if you're kind of going about this, well, is, is some sort of. Um, if, if the creator themselves can maybe, um, almost kind of self-regulate themselves or, I mean, fortunately, the videos that I was doing, it, it really was just me talking in front of a video. So I wasn't really relying on, um, other inte- intellectual property. And, and I know for other people, there, it's, it's kind of a slippery slope as to what you can include or, or to what degree can you include something and then try to maybe source it or, or link it in a, in a show note? It, it gets really tough. And so, um, I, I think this is just the latest story in really what is becoming a, a, a difficult monetization uh, strategy for a lot of video creators. And that's unfortunate. I mean, for some people with a million or more followers, um, even they are reporting increased trouble. So I can only imagine for people who maybe were trying to do this as a hobby or, or really just trying to do videos and uh, trying to start something here where they can spend more time doing it. It just feels like it's it's another uh, speed bump. I think YouTube is trying to do what is best for YouTube, obviously. <laughs> of course. I mean, isn't that, yeah. the, isn't that the core question no, it's, here? It's, is like, well, okay. This is the thing is they've, they've sunk a hundred million dollars into their content ID system. Um, so if they've spent nine figures trying to make it work, they're going to insist that it's the best solution because otherwise they have to answer questions like, how did you spend all this money on something that is, is not, um, on something that, that, on something that is not improving our bottom line or helping our bottom line. And, um, this whole thing, honestly, the, the, I don't dispute that there are some good points that they've brought up and I don't dispute this. I think this would disproportionately affect smaller creators. I, you know, if YouTube's like, nope, sorry, we got to pull videos. We, we have to block them. It does disproportionately affect smaller creators, people who don't have, um, the resources to make sure that they, um, hit YouTube's vetting standards and, uh, don't run afoul in any way. But at the end of the day, what YouTube is basically saying here is, um, what they're saying to internal folk, because they're, you know, they're owned by Google. So what they're basically saying to Google investors is, we didn't waste nine figures on a content system that doesn't work. The problem is not with us, it's with someone else. And they've also uh, sent a signal that they think it's too expensive to comply. And so it's easier to attack the law than it is to um, take a look at how they do business or um, admit that they'd spent that money poorly. <laughs> It's um, that said, I think this points to a larger issue, which is that we are kind of in the age of remix culture. And um, as James said, copyrights go on for way too long and it shifts the burden 
again, unfairly to smaller creators or people who don't have a lot of corporate backing. So I I sort of see this as the kind of fight that we're going to see increasingly over the next decade or so as um, more and more content distribution systems or streaming systems or or anything where people have been able to crowdsource creativity, um, you're going to see many more battles like this as uh, government entities say, well, artists and corporations need to be fairly compensated for their intellectual property. And other people are like, define intellectual property and define fair compensation. <laughs> and um, the distribution networks are like, also, we'd like to limit our liability and our expenses in complying. It's this, this is just the first one. The, the first uh, battleground, I think. I mean, you're, you're completely right that this is self-serving because this is, I mean, th- of course it is. But at the same time, I, and it's easy for me to be like, oh, yes, YouTube doesn't want to do the job of keeping copyright infringement off its platform and is trying to threaten people uh, by pointing at creators and they de- in, the, in, their, in their save the internet or whatever they're calling it, save your internet, which is a, the, yeah. YouTube is the internet, by the way. That's a weird thing. Uh, they, they call out by name a whole bunch of YouTube creators in the EU, like Kurtz Kassacht and CGP Grey. And uh, it, it seems very weird, like, you know, buy this magazine or we'll shoot this dog kind of stuff. That said, that said, I think we all know that uh, it, it was a good idea to put uh, to not make platform owners responsible for everything that happened on their platform uh, when the U.S. made that decision in terms of the law, because it, it was very impractical and like youtube has invested so much in the content id stuff and this is this is youtube saying you know even that isn't going to be good enough for this law and and i can see a european regulator saying well you know you've got a lot of money hire a lot of people build a lot of magical new technology and and sort this out I got to say, my gut feeling here is that this is a uh, regulation passed by a group of politicians slash bureaucrats who uh, don't understand how technology works and think that if they make it a law, uh, then things will just magically be solved. This this seems like a uh, I, I, so so my feeling after reading through all of this is that I kind of tend to believe YouTube here that this is an overreach where the law is imagining a magical perfect future that is not realistic and uh and that that leaves aside the link tax which i think is one of the most ludicrous things i've ever That's seen insane. which yeah, well what that... they're trying to do is say oh well we don't want google news to take over as the source for all news so we'll charge them and pay have them pay the news organizations but that won't work they will i think there's a law like this in germany and basically what it's meant is all the major publishers basically made a deal with google to not get paid in order for the links to keep flowing so they basically the companies bypassed the the regulation because what what is happening now works better anyway it, it just you know it's one of those things where i like I, i'm super skeptical when a big company like youtube says oh no this is bad and it would hurt our business there's nothing we can do about it but in this case i think maybe they're right did you see the this just related to that the story today about the japanese cyber security minister oh, who yes. admitted that he's never actually used a computer in his life oh my god that was a spectacular thank you for mentioning that James, uh, yeah, there was a Japanese. He, he's the minister for cybersecurity. Also, he's supposedly in charge of uh, bringing the Olympics there in 2020, and that's having lots of problems too. But uh, the J- Japanese cybersecurity minister has—he's in his 60s. He's always had a secretary, and uh, therefore he is—he's 68. He has never used a computer. He was asked a question in Parliament about the. Um, uh, about uh, what would happen if a, an infected USB drive were attached to a computer in some system. Keep in mind, he is in charge of cybersecurity. He was not aware what a USB drive was. So, yeah, yeah, sometimes governments don't actually understand what's going on. Well, if you want to yeah. hear something terrifying, back in the 90s, I, when I was in grad school, one of the research projects I was on was on intellectual property and fair use on the internet. And... Um, when I was on winter break, I get a frantic call from the woman I worked for. She said, Tim Leahy needs me to advise him on intellectual property. What can you tell me in five minutes for the committee he's running tomorrow? Great. It didn't hit me until after I hung up the phone because, you know, young person. And I was like, wait, what? The things I said are just going to go straight through and and, and possibly <laughs> affect federal policy. So, you yeah. know, I, I, I think we can all agree that there is an experience – or a knowledge gap with some legislators and the um, 
way technology, the way technologies work or how they are used by people or how they can be used by people. <laughs> to, be, to be fair, the, the, that gap exists in lots of places. I'm reminded, again, I, I always beat them up, but the Washington Post did an editorial at one point about encryption regarding law enforcement and creating backdoors and encryption, where they literally said, surely the wizards in Silicon Valley can invent a magic <laughs> key that will encrypt things surely only when wizards. a judge... And, it, and it's like, <laughs> guys, guys they, they, like, no, that's not how the math underneath encryption works but they're like no they're smart i'm sure they'll figure it out and that i was thinking about that with this story because i i wonder if there's an eu representative somewhere kind of saying yeah they, you know they're the, the the computer whizzes they, they got this they're gonna figure it out we'll just pass a law and they'll uh, make it happen and that's not how it works there's like a whole other podcast to be done on the rhetoric around technology and the myths that have sprung up between the 1970s and now. And because because you don't get to a place where you're referring to people who do math for a living as wizards, unless unless and until there's been some cultural momentum behind it. And um, where do, I would love to again, this would be a it's, fun it's podcast. It's literally you, mystification, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, it's obfuscation and it's assigning some sort of weird, otherworldly, non-logical value to an industry that is that is based on the premise that zero equals zero and one equals one. <laughs> no, so encryption isn't math; it's magic. <laughs> what are you talking? I about? am a wizard as well, though. Oh, so, Jay, yeah. Thank you. That's right. Thank you for being here, uh, our wizard, <laughs> our wizard guest. Uh, uh, so. All right. Uh, I didn't even bring up Facebook this week. Facebook had another bad week, but I feel like if we did, if we did a segment on Facebook every week, every week we would have a segment on how Facebook had a bad week this week. This was all, I think, you can re- read the New York Times story if you haven't, the feature about how they responded to the criticisms and, 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 and soft-pedaled a bunch of things that they knew were bad, but they tried to hide it. And it is amazing. It is like, just think of that cartoon with the dog sitting in the flaming bar saying, this is fine. Uh, as you read it, because I think that's... Meanwhile, uh, Facebook's... The other story was that Facebook's internal morale is way down. Shocker. Anyway, uh, we didn't talk about Facebook, except I just sort of did. We will move on. I'm sure that will come back again in a future episode to the fuzzy puppy update before we go. I'm going to go kitty instead of puppy this time, because I have that right. I have a cat and a dog, and I can do uh, both. A stray kitten wandered into the governor's mansion in North Carolina, and uh, the, the <laughs> all of the human interest story journalists in North Carolina Carolina are super happy about this. Uh, it is catnip to human interest journalists. In fact, uh, found in a garage at the North Carolina governor's mansion. It's an adorable uh, little kitten, and they decided to adopt it. It's a little black kitten named Jenny, and uh, she is friendly and talkative, and she hunts uh, the patterns on the carpets. She pounces on the just the lines in the carpets in the governor's mansion, and they have uh, given her a vet workup and a flea bath. And she's going to get her shots. And this adorable little kitten is now part of the uh, the family, the first family of North Carolina, who already has a dog and uh, a couple of cats. So they've got uh, many, many animals in the governor's mansion. But now they have an extra one that's an adorable little black cat. So that is my fuzzy puppy update for you. It's a kitty this week. Uh, don't at me. Sometimes it'll be about a kitty. And that brings us to the end of Download. Uh, Neil Seibart, where can people find your stuff? So my site is aboveavalon.com. And I'm also on Twitter, at Neil, N-E-I-L, Seibart, C-Y-B, A-R-T. Excellent. Lisa, where can people find you? Twitter is probably the best place. L-S-C-H-M-E-I-S-E-R. And uh, the place that I edit is itprotoday.com. Excellent. And James Thompson, where can people find you? Uh, I'm James Thompson on Twitter. Thompson without a P. And pcalc.com is where you can find all my software. Pcalc with a P. So you you took the P from Thompson and put it on pcalc instead. I never thought about that. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) Well, we're blowing minds here at Download. All right. (laughs) And I have been your host, Jason Snell. Stephen Hackett will be back, as will I, but not next week. We'll be back in two weeks. Happy Thanksgiving, America. Uh, But until then, we will keep watching the headlines so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.